be having the main message given to us by Pastor Adrian Davis, entitled Becoming Leaders for God. But before that, before that, we have special music given to us by Jessica Kowalczyk and Caitlin Palmetier, and their piece is entitled To Believe. And with Pam's permission, we'd like to dedicate this song to Frank Clef for everything that he's done for the choir.
say good morning, brethren. Morning. Certainly appreciate the special music and the dedication to Mr. Frank Klett. I think the way we live our lives, as we saw in Hebrews, even when we die, we can still witness from the grave. And our brother Frank witnesses to us from the grave for his dedication. And uh, much of what we've heard in this sermonette, a uh, profound sermonette, I do not clap for messages on principle. Uh, a message is not a performance. So I don't care who speaks, I don't clap. So I found myself wondering what I was doing when I was coughing after that sermonette. I was so moved and touched by it. I feel I need to just uh, clarify a couple of things from last night. Uh, number one, I said that uh, Brother Clarence hails from Nova Scotia. Big mistake. He's from Newfoundland. Big difference. I apologize. Also, um, Landon gave us a joke last night, and I didn't get it. It had to be explained to me. So I don't know if others are like this, but what he said was, don't you think the inventor of knock-knock jokes should receive the Nobel Prize. I didn't get that, so I thought that's a great joke. <laughs> well, brethren, it has been a remarkable feast. And I want to thank you on behalf of Pastor Murray and myself for your contribution. Uh, it's just been a phenomenal feast, and we're really grateful here as we celebrate this uh, last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Which, by the way, I'll say, uh, congratulations, Brother Lloyd and uh, Sister Gail, for your anniversary. Uh, this is the 25th year, this day of the feast, uh, since I met my lovely wife, Jennifer. And uh, to our young people, uh, to echo Deacon Jan, uh, what he told you in the message, great, great youth day yesterday, a great message, uh, Deacon Jan, thank you. Uh, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor from the Lord. I, I don't know about the husband part, but the wife for sure. <laughs> uh, brethren, the feasts of God are certainly critical to our salvation and to our growth as Christians. And the word in Hebrew is moed, for feasts. But it's not the only word used for feasts. There's another word, another Hebrew word, which is a mishnah which actually refers to the feasting, the actual eating and drinking and enjoyment of the feast. I want to focus on a book today that mentions this word more than any other book in the Bible. Which book do you think that is? Any guesses? Feasts. Which book has the most feasts in it? Almost every chapter talks about feasts. Leviticus. So Leviticus 23 definitely outlines the feast, and I would have thought that as well. When you do the analysis, it's the book of Esther by a country mile. The book of Esther is all about feasts and feasting. And I want to focus on that today and to build off Brother Louis' sermonette about building community. And I think there are some lessons in this book that we can learn as we leave the feast here this year and go back to our congregations, that we can really have a mindset and a heart to build community. So we'll, we'll do that in the book of Esther. I want to include our young people by focusing on Esther, who was a young person and became a very powerful leader 
for God's people. And so what is that transition? How, how does one go from being a youth to being a powerful leader for God's people? And Deacon Jan said yesterday, the future of the church is with our youth. And I think all of us sort of breathed a sigh of relief when we saw what the youth were capable of. And we saw that yesterday. But how do they go from being youth to being leaders? And what is the lesson for us as mature Christians? How can we be better leaders for God? Let's learn these lessons through the book of Esther. But before we go there, let's get some context. And the context I'd like to give you is in Nehemiah. Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And Pastor Murray talked about the post-exilic period where the Jews had been taken captive uh, when Cyrus conquered the Babylonians. He actually gave them a blank check and said, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Not everybody went. In fact, of the millions of, of people, 42,000 went back to Jerusalem. The rest said, I'm good. They were no longer sojourners. They were comfortable. They, they unpacked their suitcases, and they were comfortable where they were. But here we're dealing with the uh, post-exilic community, which is the time of Esther. Esther is in the post-exile, in the time of Persia. But let's just get a bit of context that I want to give you before we go there. <clears throat> because I think that when we read these books in the Bible, we read into them our paradigms. And for most of us, if I say Esther, if I say Mordecai, we think, oh, these are Bible heroes. So what I'd like to do is disabuse you of that notion and say we have to go into the book of Esther with very little respect for Mordecai and Esther. The Bible does not present rosy pictures. It presents reality. And there's an ugly reality with Mordecai and Esther. And we need to face it. Yes, they do become heroes, but they don't start out that way. But let's get the context. Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 5, Ezra the priest opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, so much like I am now, he's on a raised platform, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. So we're quite merciful to you, we let you sit through these messages, but here the people stood up for the word of God, and we do that at the end of the service when we close with our closing scripture. Verse 8, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, distinctly, and they gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. I don't know how many times I've read the scripture that Brother Louis covered this morning, and I've never seen what he showed us. He gave us the sense, he read it distinctly, and caused us to understand the reading. Verse 18, also day by day, much like what we're doing now during the feast, they were keeping the feast day by day from the first day, verse 18, unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast of tabernacles seven days. And on the eighth day, tomorrow, was a solemn assembly, the last great day, according unto the manner. Now chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, so the same seventh month, so they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. 
the priests gave the sense and read the law distinctly so that they understood it. And it impacted them. It made a difference. When they went back, they were still affected by what they heard during the feast. And they wanted to do something about it. The children of Israel were assembled with fasting, with sackcloths, and earth upon them. So something they heard in the messages caused them to be very sorrowful and repentant. Verse 2. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all the strangers. So they had mixed themselves up with the strangers. As a result of the preaching, they had repented, and they were now separating themselves from the strangers. And they stood and confessed all their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. In other words, they spent half the day first reading and understanding, and then confessing and worshipping. So it wasn't a one-hour, two-hour service. It was half the day worshipping God. Verse 4. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, and then it goes through the Levites, and they cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites said, Stand up, and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all the blessings and praise. Verse 6. You, even you, are Lord alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And you have preserved them all, and the host of heaven worships you. So just that we're clear which God we're talking about, we're talking about the God of Israel. That's the God that created the whole universe, that created the earth and everything that's in it. That's the God we're talking about. And now as we see this in verse 8, we're going to get a quick history lesson. And with our youth, we've been talking about the, the narrative. What is the grand narrative in the Bible? First the Old Testament narrative, and then the New Testament narrative. And we said for the Old Testament, if you read Deuteronomy and Kings, you've got the grand narrative. For the New Testament, if you read Luke and Acts, you've got the grand narrative. But here, you could actually just read Nehemiah 9 for the grand narrative of the Old Testament. And we'll just pick up a part of it here. Verse 7, we're dealing with the God of Israel. Verse 7, You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name of So this is now the grand narrative. The God of the universe chose Abram, brought him out of Ur, and gave him the name Abraham. And found his heart faithful before you. This is it. Abraham was found faithful. And you made a covenant with him. What was the covenant? To give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. To give it, I say, to his seed. And you have performed your words. Why? Because you are righteous. The grand narrative, we're getting it here. 
But the undercurrent is that God is faithful. God is faithful. Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. And you showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet. You showed signs and wonders upon him, and upon all his servants, and on all the people of his land. For you knew that they dealt proudly against them. So you, so did you get you a name as it is to this day. Dropping down to verse 13. You came down also upon Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true laws and good statutes and commandments. So he is fulfilling the covenant that he made with Abraham through the, through the Mosaic covenant at Sinai. And you made known unto them your holy Sabbath, sacred time. And you commanded your precepts, statutes, and law by the hand of Moses, your servant. God is faithful. He is now carrying out the Abrahamic covenant through Moses, through the Mosaic covenant. Verse 16, here's the grand narrative. But they and our fathers dealt proudly, and they hardened their necks, and they hearkened not to your commandments. These are the people that God set aside and made sacred and blessed them with wisdom and many, many blessings and the land. And they stiffened their necks against God. This is the narrative. Verse 17. And refused to obey. Neither were they mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But you are a God that's ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and you did not forsake them. This is the grand narrative. When God makes a covenant, He keeps it. He keeps it. Verse 23. Their children also multiplied you as the stars of heaven, and brought them into the land concerning which you had promised to their fathers. The covenant is about land. And he brought them into that land. That they should go in to possess it. So the children went in, verse 24, and they possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. As powerful as they were, they had to fall before Israel. The Canaanites and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. No one could stand before the nation of Israel. They just had to blow the trumpets and walls fell down. And they subdued the land. As powerful as these people were, Israel went in and possessed the land on God's promise. Verse 25, they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods wells that were already dug. I wonder if we know what that means. If you go into a land and the wells are already dug and you have access to the water. No work. You just walk in. Vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat. And they were filled. And they became fat. 
and they delighted themselves in your great goodness. What a great God, the God of Israel. Verse 26, here's the grand narrative. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets, which testified against them. So God sent prophets which testified against them and they killed them. Sometimes our, our, our most vicious attacks are going to come from the inside, not the outside. They testified against them to turn them to you, and they wrought great provocation. So let's drop down to verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keeps covenant, and the mercy that Bruce spoke about in his excellent sermonette, let not all the trouble seem little before you that has come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. God keeps covenant. And he said, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll do this. And they broke his covenant, and he sent the Assyrians in to destroy them according to the covenant. And then he sent in the Babylonians to take them captive according to the covenant. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. The God of Israel keeps covenant. And now Nehemiah is pleading with him to say, all of this trouble that we're in, please don't consider it light. See our, see our plight. Verse 33. Howbeit you are just in all that is brought upon us, for you have done right, but we have done wickedly. As much as they suffered, women were ravished, children were eaten. All of that, Nehemiah says, we brought it on ourselves. We broke the covenant. Verse 34. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept your law, nor hearkened unto your commandments and your testimonies wherewith you did testify against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, and in your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and fat land which you gave before them, neither turn they from their wicked works. And this is the context for Esther now. Behold, we, we are the children of Israel. We come from Abraham. And now look at the state that we're in. We are servants. We, we marched into the promised land and we crushed everybody that stood before us. And we inherited everything they had. The wealth of the land was ours. And now look at the state that we're in. We are servants. We are slaves. This day, for the land that you gave unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are slaves in the very land that you gave to our fathers. All of the abundance of the land that we were to enjoy, we're now slaves. And it yields much increase to who? Are we enjoying the increase of the promised land? No. It yields much increase unto the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. 
also, they have dominion over our bodies. I wonder if we know what that means. What would it be like to live where people have dominion over your body and they do whatever they want with your body? And I know some of you are married, but so what? They do whatever they want with your spouse. And you're the children of Israel. That's what they've gotten themselves into. And this is the context. They do whatever they want with our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. So with this as context now, let's go to the book of Esther. And let's see what we can learn about building community and fulfilling the exhortation of the sermonette. So here we're going to meet Esther. Let's go to Esther 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, not once. Ahasuerus is mentioned over and over and over again, and the book begins by telling you how great this king is. So he reigns over all of this land from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. That in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, which by the way is where Daniel served, so when Daniel was taken captive, he was here in Shushan the palace. Now we see Esther here. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and the, and the Medes, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even... 104 score days. So this feast went on for six months. And what the king is doing is he's preparing to go to battle against Greece. So Persia conquered Babylon, and now Greece is nipping at their heels. And so he's getting ready to go to battle with Greece, but first he's calling all of his people, his soldiers, his noblemen, and he's showing them how powerful he is, and how rich he is, and how much he will reward them if they help him conquer the Greeks. And again, uh, the sermon I was talking about loyalty. He's basically inspiring their loyalty to say, this wealth I will share with you if you help me conquer the Greeks. Verse 10. On the seventh day, so after the, after the um, six months of feasting, there was then a seven-day feast. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, uh, we would say today he was blind drunk. <laughs> he commanded Mehumen... Bista, Harbona, Bikta, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king, with the crown royal, some would say, with only the crown royal. It was an immodest, immodest thing he was asking, to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was beautiful to look at. But the queen, Vashti, refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore is the king very angry and his anger burned in him. 
And this then sets up a whole series of events that pushes Esther to the forefront. Verse 20. When the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give their husbands honor both to the great and small. So what's happened here is they've made this decision that he has to do something. And basically has to depose Vashti, and I believe she was executed, and then he needs to bring in a new wife. And that way, everybody in the kingdom, the women will know their place, basically, and they'll obey the men. Uh, so he then, the, the suggestion is to go through the land and find a virgin that can replace Vashti. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hege the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things be for purification, be given to them. Let me say this in a more modern way. Uh, get your soldiers and go through the land from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. And if you see any beautiful virgins, arrest them. Take them captive and bring them to the palace. And this is what Nehemiah is lamenting. That these foreign kings, these Gentile kings, have dominion over our body at their pleasure. So we're going to find Persia's next top model. And if you're beautiful, you're under arrest. As long as you're a virgin, you're under arrest. Verse 4. And let the maiden which pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. So now enter Mordecai. And I'm going to ask you, please don't think of him as a hero. It's just Mordecai. He's just a guy. Okay. So here now a Jew named Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So the author wants to establish the fact that Mordecai comes from Benjamin. So we're going to file that away. It's an important detail. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem. So Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So he is now a descendant of the Jews that did not go back to Jerusalem. So there was the 42,000 that went back in the first wave, and there were others that said, we're comfortable here. It's okay. We don't really care about Jerusalem. Mordecai is descended from those that said, we don't care about Jerusalem. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. So Esther is her pagan name, probably a derivative of Ishtar. Her Jewish name is Hadassah. His uncle's daughter, so it's his cousin, but she's younger, so he brings her up. For she had neither father or mother, so something in the captivity looks like they were lost. And the maid was fair and beautiful whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, he took for his own daughter. So it's not really his daughter, it's his cousin, but he's adopted her. Verse 8. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody 
of Haggai that Esther, the Jew, was also brought to the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, the keeper of the women. So now Esther is introduced to us. We're not really told much about her except that she's an orphan and that Mordecai has adopted her. And what I want you to notice as we're introduced to Esther is she is passive. Her relationship to any verb that's used is she is the object of the action. She has no will. She seems to have no opinions of her own. She is, she is used and moved about and she's just a passive woman. But it's going to change. But here we see that she's brought, she's basically been arrested and she's brought into the king's house and she's now in custody of Haggai, the keeper of the women. And there's lots of women. So it's a big land and anybody who's beautiful is arrested and so now there's lots of women here. Verse 9. The maiden pleased Haggai and she obtained kindness of him. And he speedily gave her things for purification, such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens were given to her, which were meet to be given to her out of the king's house. And Haggai preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. So there was something about Esther that caught the Chamberlain's attention, and he gave her favor. So there's something in her character and her personality which sets her apart. Verse 10. Esther had not declared that she was a Jew. Why? Because Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Okay. Just step away from the scripture a little bit so you know that this is me talking, not the Bible. It's not his dog. It's the adopted dog. She's been arrested. But she's in the palace. If she's chosen, she has a shot at becoming queen. You know what? If you have to sleep with the king for one night, it's worth it. You could be queen. So, Jews, we have a covenant. We have commandments that we have to keep. We don't do that. A Jewish maiden with a Gentile man overnight, that's against the law. So, so don't tell them that you're Jewish. Just kind of pretend you're like everybody else. This is Mordecai. So I say to you, don't look at him as a hero. He's just a Jewish guy. Descended from the people who chose not to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He commanded her, don't you dare tell them that you're Jewish. And she complied. Verse 13. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, and whatever she asked for was given to her to go out of the house of the women unto the king's house. So all the women are kept in this house, the king is over there. When it's your night, ask for whatever you want and you can go and try and impress the king and, and we'll give it to you. Verse 14, in the evening she went and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody 
of Shashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. So basically the king sleeps with these women. If he doesn't choose them, they go into another house, and those are the concubines, and he'll sleep with them whenever he's ready, but they're not wives. Uh, she came, so the woman would then come to the king no more, unless he kind of, there was something about her that he really liked, then if she was called by name, she could come back to the palace. Now, so that's, that's the, 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 the operation here. Bring all these beautiful women, put them in the house of the virgins, take them one by one to the palace where they can sleep with the king, uh, spend the night with him, then when he's done with them, send them to the concubine house. And if there was something about them that, you know, not, not impressive enough to become queen, but impressive enough to delight him, then he might call you by name and you can come back. So there's basically three houses in operation here. Verse 15, now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king, she required nothing but what Haggai the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. So again, we're seeing this character of Esther where she's not self-willed. She, she really doesn't even seem to have uh, any will of her own. But there's something special about her. Everybody who interacts with her sees there's something special about her and wants to support her. But when it's her turn to say, what do you want to impress the king? She just follows whatever Haggai tells her to do. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of everyone that looked at her. Verse 16, so Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus, the Gentile king, into his house royal in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther. There's something about Esther, her character, personality. He just fell in love with her. Above all the women. This is lots of women. From India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. All of these beautiful women. All different types of beauty, different sizes, different personalities. And somehow Esther rises above them. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Verse 19, And when the virgins were gathered together the second time. So he's married now. The, the mission is accomplished. He's found his wife. And we're gathering the virgins again another time. So he's got, he hasn't finished going through the virgins. So this is the this is a Gentile king. Then Mordecai sat at the king's gate. Esther had not yet shown her Jewishness, her kindred, nor her people, because Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with. So what we see here is an immature woman. She's a child. She's been married to the king, she's now a queen, but she's still a child. And she does whatever Mordecai commands her to do. Verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of, who, of those which kept the door, were angry. And they sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. So, you know, possibly one of these women that he defiled could have been their daughters, but 
mothers, uh, well, maybe not mothers because they'd be virgins, wouldn't they? But sisters. Uh, something has happened where they want to kill the king. And the thing was made known to Mordecai, who told it to Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king in Mordecai's name. And when the inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Chapter 3. After these things, the king Ahasuerus promoted Haman. So now we have the next character coming to the scene. So we've seen the king, we've seen Esther, or Mordecai, then Esther, now Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Adagite. A very important detail. So Mordecai is a Benjamite, Haman is an Adagite and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, or Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. This is hilarious. Mordecai did not bow, nor do him reverence. So I'm, I'm just trying to help me work this out. You can take my daughter, and you can take her into the palace overnight. And while you're the king, what can I do? But when you, the very same king, command me to just show honor to Haman, well, I'm not doing that. So Mordecai seems to pick and choose which commandments of the king he'll obey. So for, Mor for Esther to be with the king for a night, there's gain in that for Mordecai. So like, it's okay, we just kind of go towards the king. But this personal thing with him and Haman, when the king commands, there's no reference that any other Jew had a problem with showing honor to Haman. But Mordecai had a problem, a personal problem. And let's see the root of that. Well, first uh, chapter, Esther 3, uh, verse 3. Then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, verse, verse 4, when they spoke daily unto him. So this wasn't just one off. Every single day he was doing this. And they spoke to him daily that he hearkened not unto them. They then told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them, that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow to him, nor do him reverence, Haman was full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so he wants to punish Mordecai, for they had shown him the people of Mordecai. So once he figured out that Mordecai was a Jew, then Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. So this went from being a personal issue to now being an ethnic one. Oh, he's a Jew. Oh, he's from Benjamin. Okay, let's destroy all of them. Throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even all the people of Mordecai. So let's see the root of this conflict, brethren, in 1 Samuel 15. Hold your place here, we're going to come back to Esther. But 1 Samuel 15, verse 
beginning in verse 9, we'll just break into the story. Saul is the king of Israel, and they have conquered the Amalekites. And Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. And Saul said to Samuel, Yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone the way which the Lord has sent me, and I have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So I have done what God asked me to do. I know he said, destroy everybody. But in my good judgment, I thought I should spare the king. You know, you never know when another nation might conquer us. It would be nice if they spared me. So, you know, we want to set up some reciprocity here, that kings are spared in time of battle. So here we see, he spared the Agag, the king. Then said Samuel, bring Agag to me, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag kind of came delicately, saying, you know, I, I hope it's okay. And he said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so that your mother, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord. He carried out what Saul should have done. And tradition says that Saul also spared the queen, or one of the women of Agag, who was pregnant. And that's where the Agagites come from. It's unfinished business. And because of this Agagite, the kingdom was stripped from Saul. It was stripped from Benjamin. So the Benjamites have hostility to the Agagites, which is hundreds of years old. It's like the conflict we see in the Middle East, where if you're born in the Middle East, you don't know why, you just hate the Jews. If somebody were actually stop you and ask you why, you don't know, it's bred into you. So in Mordecai is this hatred of Agagites. And when, when uh, Haman learns that he's a Benjamite, he would now understand the history. And so now it's his ethnic duty to wipe out the Jews. Let's go back now to Esther. <clears throat> Verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai perceived what his foolishness did to all the Jews, not just in Sushan, but through the whole empire, his foolishness put the entire race at risk. He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the middle of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And it came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So not only does he not obey Haman, or, or the king to honor Haman, but now he's also disobeying the king's command that you do not mourn with sackcloth at the gate. So the guy actually has backbone, just not when it comes to his adopted daughter, because there's gain in it. But he does have backbone. And in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting and weeping and wailing, 
and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4. Now, here is the transition of Esther. Now we begin to see verbs used with Esther, where she is the one acting. She's no longer the one being acted upon. So there's a transition that's taking place now. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and, and, and told it to her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent clothing to clothe Mordecai, and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he, re he did not receive it. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai. So now she's giving orders to know what it was and why it was. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that happened unto him, and the sum of the money that Haman, Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that was given to Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Esther. He wanted to make sure she sees the commandment and how it was written, and declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go to the king to make supplication unto him, and make requests before him for her people. So Hatak came to Esther, so he's leaving Mordecai, he now comes to Esther and he tells her what Mordecai said. And again, Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him commandment to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come to the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come unto the king these thirty days. I think you'll remember that the virgins were assembled a second time, and there's lots of them. So the king is busy. <laughs> Esther hasn't been called. And she's saying, like, you know, you want me to go and risk my life? He hasn't called me. I'm going to interrupt his business. So they're having an argument, basically through Hatak. Hatak is going back and forth like a tennis ball, carrying messages. And so they told Mordecai Esther's words. So basically Esther is saying, I'm sorry for your loss. You know, Haman, or Haman, is going to wipe out all of the Jews. That's a pity. Mordecai says, verse 12, they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Don't think to yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then now, now Mordecai, now Mordecai becomes a hero. This is profound. This, this, is, this is like Abraham saying, I know God promised me that my descendants will be like the stars of heaven. And I just have one right now. And, and now he's asking me to sacrifice him. I'm going to sacrifice him. Because God is faithful. Mordecai, maybe in this crisis he sat with his rabbi. And got to learn the covenant. But what he's saying to Esther now is. Enlargement and deliverance shall arise to the Jews from another place. God could use you. But if you don't cooperate. Don't think you're safe. We'll be safe, because there's a covenant with us. And there's no way we can be wiped out, because God is faithful. But you'll be wiped out. 
Deliverance and enlargement will arise to the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther bade them to return Mordecai this answer. Here's the transition. She's now giving Mordecai commandments. You go and gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast likewise, and then I'll go to the king, which is according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Young people, this is the transition from an immature person to a leader. A leader will perish for his people. A leader will perish for her people. A leader has vision. A leader sees the greater good. And it's not about me. So her first reaction was, wow, the Jews are going to be completely annihilated? Think of the Holocaust. And her reaction was, I'm sorry for your loss. Now something has happened, and she's saying, I'll put my neck on the line. My life doesn't matter. What matters is the community. The love that was spoken of. A deep love for the community. So this, this nature we have of selfishness, when we overcome it, then God can use us. And I want to share with you a model. It's from an anthropologist named John King. And I had a chance to meet with this man. He was brought up in an in Indian tribe. He, his parents were missionaries. So he grew up in an Indian tribe. And he, has, he spent his life now studying tribes. And he wrote a book, his name is John King, he wrote a book called Tribal Leadership. And what he said is this. You see this chart. He said, in every community, in every tribe, there are five levels of engagement. Level one, the lowest, is where you feel alienated from the tribe. And the words you speak, the theme of your language is life is awful. Life is awful. These people are the people that become mass murderers. They become suicide bombers. They're completely alienated from the community. Level two are in the community, but they feel somewhat separated. And their theme is not that life is awful, my life is awful. Level three is where we're in the community and we are useful contributors. We have a talent, we have an ability, and we can contribute to the community, and the community recognizes us. We're actually useful to the community. And the theme for these people, think of our celebrities, our athletes, I'm great. It's a sort of a celebrity culture, I'm great. He said level four, prior to this, the community is running at a deficit. On the whole, the community is in decline. It's not until we get to level four where the community is positive. It is, it is in growth mode. And it has a stability. And the theme here is, we are great. The community is great. The highest level is life is great. This model as we go back to our communities, if we understand this model, we can make a significant contribution. And I just I want to spend some time on this. I'm going to ask my volunteers 
to, to come to the front. And I want you, we're going to pretend that we're a company. This is a, an annual conference. And we have some work to do. Uh, and then we'll bring it back to what we can do within a church setting. So we need two mics. So we've got one, two, three, four. Give you a mic. We're talking business for now, corporation. This is an annual conference. We'll come back to congregations in a moment. Just a little bit of rehearsal first. Regardless of what they say, this is the underlying message. And your underlying message is? Uh, life is awful. Much too enthusiastic. <laughs> you want to, what you want to do is you want to suck the life out of the room. Okay? Life is awful. Yeah, more. Like really suck the life, life out of the room. Life is awful. Oh, exactly. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Now, your un you say a lot of things, but the underlying theme to your message is what? My life is awful. Okay. So very good. Except... We want to make sure that you're actually correcting her. So she said life is awful. You want to correct her. Life isn't awful. Your life is awful. My life is awful. Right. Okay. Now, we have a lot of conversation. You say a lot of things, Daniel. But the underlying message of your communication is? I agree. Perfect. No, no further rehearsal required. You got that right. Perfect. Okay. Now, uh, Rachel, you're the manager of these folks. Okay. Um, Lori is a lost cause. There's not much we can do to you. Uh, Landon and Daniel need each other. But Daniel really doesn't feel that his life is great. He's really level two. He is really saying, my life is awful. But he's found a talent, he's found an ability that he can hide behind. So he's really masquerading and pretending that he's great. So he needs support. And the support he gets is from Landon. So he wants Landon to know that his life is awful, so that he believes that his life is great. Okay. Now, Rachel's the manager. She needs more productivity out of Landon. So she sees potential in Landon. She wants Landon to know that he's great. And the way that she wants them is she wants them to work together as a community to say, what, what, is, your, what is your message to them? We are great. Beautiful, beautiful. Bit more encouraging now. Give them a bit more encouragement. Like we, we really want to get to Landon. He's productive. Leave him alone. We don't. He, he, he's a superstar. He's not producing. You want, you want him to believe. We are great. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay. Now, where we really want to get to, you know. So, you know, here we are. It's an annual conference. There are lots of Landons in the audience. Okay? There's lots of Daniels in the audience as well. But as, as kind of the leader here, I'm not concerned about them because they're producing. You know, this is the star salesman, he's bringing in the numbers. This is the star athlete, he's getting the touchdowns. So what we really want to do is we want to change Landon. Forget about Lori, she's like, we can't do anything there, okay? Uh, go well. uh, we, want to, we want to really turn him around, okay? And there's lots of him in the audience. So we're paying you a lot of money. You're our keynote speaker today. And what we want to do is we want to inspire the Landons in the audience okay, with your message. And what's your message? Life is great. Awesome, awesome. We're giving you an hour here, and so you want to really stir them up. So you kind of start kind of low, life is great, and we're now building up. We're kind of halfway through the message. Give them again. What's the message? Life is great. Beautiful. Now, we're paying you a lot of money, so you know we want our money's worth. So we're kind of coming into the close now. 
can you really take it home? This, this, this is where we really want to change things. We want to really see conversion here. Drive it home for us. Life is great. You know, maybe a little bit of, you know, Life is great. Awesome. Great. Well, hopefully that was really, really inspiring. You're the manager. You hired him to come in and inspire the folks here today. But, you know, who you really want to reach is Landon. So now you want to kind of check out Landon and see how was the keynote speaker? Did you really speak to him? Kind of check in and see how Landon is doing. We're great. And Landon, your response is? We are great. Uh, not quite, because you're in level two, so what's your level? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your life? Your life is awful. So, you know, you really paid a lot of money for him. You want him to get the message. So just encourage him again with the message. We're great. And your, your, your understanding is? My life is awful. So, you know, we can do this now spiritually. And we can say that if we look here, thank you very much. A round of applause for our, our volunteers. Words don't matter. Landon is wired. He's a volunteer. This was acting, by the way. He's wired that his life is awful. Now we can bring in speakers, we can bring in ministers, we can preach all we want. His mind is wired that his life is awful. Daniel is wired that he's great. In fact, he's feeling a bit resentful right now. He doesn't know why we paid so much money for Bruce when he's great. He could have done that. Okay? If we take this model and convert it to a spiritual model, what we're saying is in our congregations, in our communities, if we are operating at levels one, two, and three, the community is running at a loss. The only way we can have growth is if we get to level four. And in every congregation, in every congregation, we have people who are saying, my life is awful. Life is full of trials. You're saying, you know, it's all working out for you. I see you're blessed, but my life is awful. In every congregation, we have people saying, I'm great. Look at me, I'm speaking. You're down there, I'm here, I'm, I'm the speaker. This is dysfunction. We need to get rid of this. We are baptized into his body. He is great. Christ is great. We are members of his body. And we need each other. So that's now 1 Corinthians 12. We're great together. We're members of the body. I might be a toe, and you might be the eyes. But we're members of the same body. And we all have a function, and we all need each other. What I want to propose now, and a lot of these churches, you know, we have leaders who are saying, I am great. And if you'll pardon me, uh, I'll say, Gerald Florey, and pardon me for naming names, is saying, I am great. And he's destroying the lives of all of the members so that they're thinking, my life is awful. I can't talk to my family. I can't talk to my friends. I, I, I'm, I'm in a horrible life. Oh, but Gerald Florey is great. It's dysfunctional. And a lot of our congregations were competing with each other. We're saying, if you're in our community, you're great. We're great. But that other Church of God community, they're garbage. And I really commend our brethren in the United Church for blessing us with their presence. 
for not demonizing us, for accepting us as brethren, as we accept them as brethren. So here is where we need to get to. God is great. And we want Haman in God's kingdom. We want Hitler in God's kingdom. Because everybody who's created in God's image is created to glorify God. Amen. And God is great. Amen. And Esther and Mordecai move up from levels 2 and 3 to level 4. Where they realize the Jews are great. And they're ready to fight for the Jews. Let's just continue the story as we wind down. In, in chapter 5, she holds a banquet, and she, the king asked her, what does he want? What does she want? But look at verse 10 of chapter 5. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends, and Zeresh, his wife. Haman is level 3, and he's calling for his level 2 friends. Because level 3 needs level 2. If I'm dysfunctional at level 3, I need you to be dysfunctional at level 2. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches. I'm great. And the multitude of his children. I'm great. I'm level 3. And all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and the servants of the king. Whenever anybody brags to you about how great they are, they are a level two, masquerading as level three. We all know we're not great. And if in your congregation you have brethren who are setting themselves up as better than you, they're pretending. And we need to gently reprove them and move them up at least to level four because we're unproductive at levels two and three. Verse 12, And Haman said, Moreover, Yes, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but me. I'm great. And tomorrow I'm invited unto her also with the king. I'm level three, but I'm pretending. Verse 13, Yet all of this means nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. <coughs> I need Mordecai to bow down to me in order for me to feel great. I need level twos around me in order to me to feel like level three. And Mordecai won't bow. Chapter six. You know, um, I would give Haman some advice if I was around here. I'd give him some advice. Touch not the Lord's anointed and do his prophets no harm. So he wants to destroy Haman. He wants to destroy Mordecai. Let's see how the story ends. Esther 6. So Haman came into the king, and the king said to him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king uses to wear, used to wear, and the horse that the king rides upon, and the crown royal, which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the, by the king's most noble princes. So, etc., etc. So, the, the honor that he wants is level three, and wants everybody to see this, it ends up being given to Mordecai, 
and the destruction that he wanted to on Mordecai comes on its own head. Chapter 7. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed where Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, and then he was hung on the gallows. And then uh, verse 5 of chapter 8, Esther says, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in your sight, and the thing seems right before the king, and I'm, if I'm pleasing in your eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in the king's provinces. And again, if we have level threes in our congregation, their modus operandi is to destroy brethren, to push brethren into level two in order to feel good about themselves. We can't have this. We at least need to get to level four. And that's where Mordecai and Esther got to. So they now see the Jews are great. But in doing this, they're happy to destroy everybody else. We can't be at this level. And that's the meaning of tomorrow, the last great day. They can stone us, and we're going to say, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. We're here for mankind. And we want to be at level five. And at level five, God is great. And we see the whole community as essential. And we accept our brethren in other organizations. And we love them with the love that Brother Louis spoke of in the sermonette. A deep, passionate love. That's what we have for everybody. Not just in the community. All mankind. Christ came to die for all mankind. We are now His body. We sacrifice ourselves for all mankind. Mordecai and Esther never got to love Father. With the Holy Spirit, we can get to love God. And that's why they celebrate Purim, and we don't. Purim is not in the plan for mankind. The Jews were saved. Haman cast lots to destroy the Jews, and God reversed everything. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but we know that God keeps covenant. He's faithful to the covenant. And, and Mordecai figured that out and said... Who knows, Esther, maybe you've come to the palace for such a time as this. But if you keep quiet, you'll be destroyed, but the Jews will be saved. And so great that they celebrate Purim. We support that. It's got nothing to do with the plan of God. It's level four. We're level five. And level five is in Leviticus 23. And it's in the last great day tomorrow. We're here for all mankind. Let's conclude, brethren, in 1 Corinthians 12. And I, I will say while I'm here, to our brethren in United that are here, uh, thank you so much. We love you. Uh, send a message to your leaders from us. We love them. We love them, and, and we want to cooperate we want to cooperate with you. Let's conclude in 1 Corinthians 12. For the body of Christ is not one member. We're not interested in level threes. That's dysfunctional. It's not one member. 
It's many. There are no heroes in the body of Christ. And I would say, you know, for any of us who've been in the church at any time, we are suspicious of ministers because they were operating at level three. They wanted us to see how great they were. I remember coming into Worldwide and being told by a minister, brethren, lay members do not have gifts. Only the ministers have gifts. And I believe it. I read my Bible now and I think that is utter nonsense. The Holy Spirit empowers you. You have gifts. And that enables you to edify the body. There are no heroes. Ministers are essential. We need teachers. But we are useless without the body. We need you as much as you need us. There's no hero. The only hero is Christ. There are no heroes in the body. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where is the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where is the smelling? But now has God, God has done this, brethren. And think of this in your congregation. Think of this CGI as a whole. Think of this the whole Church of God movement. This is God's operation. He has set the members, every one of us, in the body as it pleases Him. There is no, we don't have room for level 3 or level 2 or level 1. We have to be at a minimum at level 4. And then grow up to level 5. God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased Him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members and yet one body. Brethren, the message that we want to get from this feast is we have to go back to our congregations and see ourselves as one member in a body. That body is Christ's. I have seen some of the worst exchanges between human beings in the church. To our shame. People in the world treat each other with more respect sometimes than we do in the church. Let's commit. Let's commit to seeing ourselves as part of a body. That body is Christ's. And let's esteem each other better than ourselves. And let's understand that as part of this body, we are to sacrifice ourselves for the world. We're not great. God is great. Amen. Amen.